Blog Talk Radio. sermon is by John MacArthur, pastor, author, and the Bible teacher with Grace to You. If you've never contacted Grace to You, we want to send you a free booklet by John called Found God's Peace. It's all about helping you defeat anxiety and know true and lasting contentment. Request your free booklet by writing to peace at gty.org. That's P-E-A-C-E at gty.org. Offer good in North America and Europe through June of 2018. And now, unleashing God's truth, one verse at a time. Here's grace to you, Bible teacher, John MacArthur. Let's share together in a word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for the great day we've already had, and thank you because my own heart is so full. I, I just feel so overwhelmed with all the events of today and yesterday and the past week. And I pray, Lord, that uh, somehow I might, in a very small way, be faithful to fulfill the expectation of these people who are so gracious to me and to my wife and family. Thank you, Father, for the high calling you've given to all of us and to me, especially to teach and present your word. Bless us tonight, Lord, and fill our hearts with joy as we share together and also with conviction and insight we might understand what it really means to be salt and light in the world. May we really hear you speak, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Here our Lord in his Sermon on the Mount directs his attention away from the multitudes to the group of disciples gathered closest to him, and he says to them, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, with what shall it be salted? It is thereafter good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden underfoot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. A magazine once carried a series of pictures, and that series of pictures depicted one of the saddest stories imaginable. The first picture was the picture of a vast wheat field in Kansas. It was a farm in western Kansas, and from horizon to horizon, all you could see was the wheat waving in the wind. The second picture was of a mother in distress inside her farmhouse in the middle of that wheat field. She had a small boy who had somehow wandered away from the house into that wheat field. And the little fellow was so small that he couldn't be seen. She couldn't find him. She had called for her husband, and the two of them had searched all day long for that little fellow. And they finally decided that they should call the neighbors who began to search frantically all over the wheat field with no success. And they knew the boy was too little to see above the wheat and find his own way out. And so the picture showed her in great distress. The third picture depicted all the people who had heard of the little boy being lost, gathered in the morning, joining their hands, hand to hand, and in a great long line of humanity, linked only by their hands, sweeping from one end of that wheat field to the next. The last picture was a heartbreaker. The last picture was a picture of the father standing over the body of his little son. They had finally found him, but he was dead, and it was too late. The cold, cold night had claimed its victim. And underneath the final picture of a weeping father were these words, Oh, 
God, if we had only joined hands sooner. What a heart-searching story that is. Listen, people. Jesus said, as he looked out over the fields, the field is white unto harvest. But the laborers are what? Few. You know, I really believe there's a world of lost men. There's a world of lost women. There's a world of lost boys and girls way out in the field of the world, and they can't find home. They can't find the Father's house. They can't see above the wheat of the world. And they're perishing in the night of sin, and when the cold morning dawns, it'll be too late. And the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe, right here in Matthew 5, 13 to 16, is saying to us, join hands. Join hands. Be salt and light. Sweep through the field of the world to find all of those who are desperately in need of your influence and your message. And I don't think one can do it. I don't think two can do it. I don't even think a handful can do it. I think the whole church has to join hands and be collective salt. Salt is useless as far as one grain is concerned, and light is a combination of fluorescence. We've got to take hands and sweep through the world, and that's the message that Jesus is giving us right here. We are salt and we are light to reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is the vital message contained right here in our Lord's words. He has followed up the Beatitudes. In the Beatitudes, he says, here's the character I expect you to have. And if you have this kind of character, then you're a child of my kingdom. And if you have this character and you are a child of my kingdom, here's your job. Sweep through the world as salt and light and make a difference. Jesus is calling on us, as we saw in our last study, to influence the world for His glory, to find the lost before it's too late. And the key is what's gone on in the verses before. Having magnificently come to know the principles and the qualities that render us effective for God, that bring us into His kingdom, that make us distinct from the world, He now tells us, move out into the world with that marvelous distinctiveness and find those that are lost and bring them to Christ. The supreme matter in the kingdom is character. Character is the issue. The character described in the Beatitudes makes it possible for us to affect the world. You know, I, I really worry a lot in my own heart about Grace Community Church in this regard. I think, you know, we can get to the place where we are so in love with each other, if you will. And we are so thrilled about everything that goes on here, and we're so happy about it all, and we, we sit in little groups, and we disciple each other, and we pray with each other, and we counsel each other, and we talk to each other. And the fact is that we're always in the danger that we'll never link hands and sweep through the world. It will never crawl out of our ivory tower of the bliss of our Christian fellowship. The Lord is saying that that's something we have to do. The emphatic is here. We are the only salt and we are the only light the world will ever know. So you, you notice that the final beatitude is transitional, don't you? The final beatitude is in verse 10. Blessed are they who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Verse 11. Blessed are you when men shall revile you, persecute you, say all manner of evil against you falsely. 
In other words, um, the world is going to hate us and the world is going to persecute us. We expect that to happen. We don't expect it to be easy. And I believe it'll get harder and harder all the time. It isn't going to be easier. We had a little house next door here. We had our special people in that house, the handicapped people. They'd get in there, get in there for a couple hours on a Sunday morning. But there's been a ruling by a judge somewhere that says a house cannot be used for religious purposes without a permit, even if you own the house. Sam Erickson on our staff called the city to find out about that, and he said this. He said, you mean if I want to have some people over to my house to study the Bible, that we have to have a permit? They said, yes. He said, what if I want people to come over to my house and drink beer and watch pornographic movies? That's fine. But then if we decide to talk about the Bible, we have to have a permit? That's right. I don't know what that means in the future, but I don't think it's going to get any easier. I think the price is going to be paid, and I think God wants us to confront the world. And just because the world persecutes us and reviles us and says all manner of evil against us falsely, and just because it seems impossible that in a country where the Constitution says no law can ever be passed that takes away any of the freedom of religion at all from anybody, we're facing a fact that you can't have a Bible study in your house without a permit. I really don't think that it's going to get any easier. I think that just because the world makes it tough on us, we don't crawl in a hole, we don't keep our mouths shut, we don't hide. We come right into verse 13. We are salt in the world and we are light in the world. Now, to better understand this concept, I told you last time there are four great truths you need to grip. First, the presupposition, then the plan, then the problem, and then the purpose. Now, I want to give you these quickly tonight. I know your heart is already full from so many other things today, and and we've already had such a wonderful time that I don't want to just drag you out, but I want to fire them at you quick, and I want you to get them. The presupposition in this text is the decay and darkness of the world. The very text presupposes decay and darkness. Where you need salt, you have decay, and where you need light, you have darkness. And so our Lord is saying, here's the presupposition. We are living in a decadent, dark world. And that's really what I was trying to say to you this morning. We've got to be different. We can't affect the world unless we're different. Our lives have to be different. Our relationships have to be different. Our homes have to be different. And God could look at our world as he looked at that antediluvian, that pre-flood world, and said, God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. We live in a dark and a decadent world. That is the presupposition to what Jesus said. Our world is a desperate world. And just because they make it hard on us, we can't stop preaching because there's somebody lost out there in that field and we've got to sweep through the world no matter what the price. The second thing we talked about last time was the plan. The presupposition is the darkness and decay of the world. The plan is the dominion of the disciples. We've got to move in the world and dominate it. Notice in verse 13, ye are the salt. Verse 14, ye are the light. Verse 16, let your light so shine. What is God's plan to deal with this dark and decaying world? His plan is us. It's us. There isn't anybody else. It isn't going to be given to anybody else. It doesn't belong to famous evangelists. They'll never touch the people you touch. It doesn't belong to great preachers. It doesn't belong to people on the radio and television, people who write books. It belongs to all of us. This is God's divine plan. The pronouns in verses 13 and 14 are emphatic. Ye only are the salt. Ye only are the light. If you don't do it, there's nobody to do it. 
Now look closely at the symbols. Last time we studied salt. Salt speaks of influence, of influence. Salt is the silent testimony. Salt is our moving through the world and affecting it with our very life. We said that salt basically has five functions. Purity, flavor, sting in a wound, thirst, it creates thirst, and a preservative. And we are to be in the world pure, glistening white against the darkness of the world. We are to flavor life with the wonder of God's presence among us. We are to sting and convict the sinful wound of the world. We are to create a thirst for Christ by the very way we live, as Israel is to be provoked to jealousy by the church. And we are to be a preservative. We are an antiseptic in the world to retard the spread of its corruption. If it weren't for Christians in the world, the world would be far more corrupt than it is now. We preserve it. And by the way, you notice it says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. This covers the whole earth. We are the only salt the whole earth will ever know. And, and Jesus is saying that the earth is like a carcass, slowly but relentlessly deteriorating, rotting and in great need of some power to restrain that corruption, to create a thirst for God, to sting sin's wound, to flavor life, and to bring purity to some dark and decaying soul. We are that salt. This is our witness as the silent impact of a godly life. Listen, the way to change the world isn't to change it politically. The way to change the world isn't to rewrite the laws. It isn't to march and, and it isn't to try to use all of the technical paraphernalia for altering society. The way to change the world, people, is just to infiltrate it with godliness and righteousness and holiness and affect it from the inside out. Now, those other things aren't wrong, but they are going to be powerless unless our lives are what they ought to be. Think about it this way. Never has the church been more involved in social action in our, in our country. Never has the church been more involved in social action in recent history in our country. Never have we been so preoccupied with endeavoring to see Christianity in government. And what is the result? A society that's more immoral than it's ever been. Because that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is the influence of a godly life. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, and I quote, most competent historians are agreed in saying that what undoubtedly saved England from a revolution such as was experienced in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not done because anything was done directly, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and they were living this better life and they had this higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected. And the great acts of Parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land, end quote. What he's saying is that uh, they dominated the land by the power of their testimony. It's wonderful to think of the fact that God could turn around a whole nation. He could turn around a whole world by using us. God uses simple things. You know that. God uses simple, mundane, everyday, routine, common things for the most amazing purposes. You know, when he made man in the garden, he didn't use gold. He didn't use silver. He didn't even use iron. He used dirt. 
That ought to give you right from the start a kind of an idea how he works. When he called David to deliver Israel from the Philistines, he didn't want Saul, the great king, and he didn't even want Saul's massive armor. He used a shepherd and a couple of stones, that's all. And when he came into the world, he didn't enter the family of the wealthy and the noble, and he didn't find himself born in a castle. He simply chose a peasant girl in a stable. And when he chose the twelve, he didn't choose the, the elite and the educated and the affluent, he just chose a group of ignorant Galileans. And the Bible says not many mighty and not many noble. And that's the way it always has been because God gets the greater glory and the humbleness of the one that he uses. So he uses us, grains of sand, to influence a corrupting world. But it doesn't stop with influence. And now we come to the second thing, and that's light. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. You know, and now we move to another thought here. Salt and light balance each other in this sense. Salt is hidden. You don't see it at all. It just melts away into whatever it flavors or whatever it preserves. It works secretly to preserve from the inside. But light shines on the outside, and light is open, and light is working visibly. In other words, the salt is the influence of Christian character. It is quiet, but it is powerful. Light is the communication of the content of the gospel. And so you have both sides. On the one hand, we live it. On the other hand, we preach it. On the one hand, from the inside, we affect society's thinking and society's living by the power of our lives. On the other hand, we turn on the light so that everybody can see the message we want to give. And it isn't just in our words, it's in our very overt, open, godly conduct. We are not to just be a subtle influence like salt. We are to be a very open and blatant influence such as light. Because, you see, salt can't change corruption into incorruption. Salt can only retard the corruption. That's only a negative function. Salt only holds back the corruption. We have to turn on the light of the gospel to transform that corruption into incorruption. And, of course, our light is primarily indicated in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That implies, first of all, that they see our good works. Secondly, they glorify our Father in heaven. That means they've heard something about our Father in heaven. It implies both a life and a message, lived and spoken. And so here we are as salt, retarding the things of corruption in the world. But at the same time as light, we speak the truth of the light and we live the truth of the light. So there's an overt and positive testimony as well. You remember back in Acts 1-1 where the apostle writes, where Luke writes, and he says, The former letter have I made unto you, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do and to teach. And ever and always, people, those two things go together, the living and the speaking. Our light is a matter of living the righteous life and of uttering out the righteous content, the righteous truth. If you study the Bible, you find that light is related to the knowledge of God. Light is related to the true knowledge of God. For example, just a couple of, of scriptures in Psalm 36, 9, it says this, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. 
So the first thing we have to realize is that God is light, right? First John chapter 1. In thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light shall we see light. God is light. So if we are to be light, then we must manifest God. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? Light unto my path. God is light. The word is light. In the New Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall see the light of life. So we see that God is light, and the Bible or the Word of God is light, and Christ is light. And that is the light that we are to shine on the world. We're to tell them about God. We're to tell them about God's Word, and we're to tell them about God's Christ. That's letting the light shine, and it's got to be spoken, and then it's got to be supported by a life, doesn't it, that is consistent. Remember I read you this morning when we opened our service, Psalm 27, 1, the Lord is my, what, light and my salvation. So the fact is, if you want to know what light is in the Bible, it's just the comprehensive term referring to all of God's revelation, the revelation of Himself, of His Word, and of His Son. That's light. And so we are to proclaim the message of light in a dark world as well as to be salt in a decaying one. In Luke 1.77, the purpose for which Christ came, to give knowledge of salvation to His people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. That's why He came, to give light to them in darkness. And so what our Lord is saying here is that collectively we manifest the light. He's the sun. We're just moons, right? He is the real light. He is the essence of light. We're reflectors. That's all. John 1, 9, Christ is the light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He's the only true light, but we are reflectors of that light. He's the sun and we're the moons. And beloved, I think this is the primary duty of the church, to be light in the world, to spread the message of salvation. Not just to sit around talking to each other. That's wonderful. And having fellowship is wonderful. And that's rich. And that's exciting. But sooner or later, we've got to be light in the world. And we've got to be salt in the earth. We've got to get out from just being wrapped up in ourselves. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6, let me give you just a free rendering in that verse. God, who first ordered the light to shine in the darkness, has flooded our hearts with His light. We now can enlighten men only because we can give them knowledge of the glory of God as we have seen it in the face of Jesus Christ. I'll read it again. God, who first ordered the light to shine in darkness, has flooded our hearts with His light. And we now can enlighten men only because... God has given us the knowledge of His glory as we've seen it in the face of Christ. So you see, God passes the light all the way down through us. So important. The Jews in Romans 2 claim to be light. The Apostle Paul denies that. Their light had gone out. They, they weren't lights anymore. The Jews used to say that Jerusalem was a light to the Gentiles. In fact, a, a famous rabbi once called the city of Jerusalem the lamp of Israel. 
But it wasn't true anymore. When Jesus spoke these words that day on the hillside, Jerusalem wasn't any light. God's light wasn't there anymore. That was no lamp. The world was in darkness. And so Jesus says, it isn't Jerusalem anymore that's the light. It isn't Israel anymore that's the light. It isn't the Jewish people anymore that are the light. You only are the light. The church would be the light. The ones who follow Jesus Christ would be the light. And so it's been all along. We're the light. Philippians chapter 2 verse 14 puts it this way. Do all things without murmurings and disputings that ye may be blameless and harmless children of God without rebuke. Oh, that's it, folks. You've got to live the life. You've got to live the life, see? The life has to be there, a blameless life, harmless and blameless and without rebuke. Listen, if they're going to criticize us, let them have to make up something because there's nothing they can use. If we have to be hated, let us be like Christ, hated without a what? A cause. Why? Because we are to be... Blameless, harmless children of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked, perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. See, we are the lights holding forth the word of life. Jesus illustrates this thought right here in Matthew 5. He says we've got to be visible, folks. We can't just be secret influence. We've got to be visible. And the light has to shine openly. Verse 14 of Matthew 5 says, A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Now, if you ever travel in the Holy Land in the time of the Lord, and perhaps even today, you'd be impressed with the fact that the villages are built on the tops of the hills. I'll never forget going through Galilee, and it seemed like uh, every village you saw just kind of sat up on a little hill. I remember going to Cana and seeing Cana up against a hill. And then further up to the left, a little ways to the north, I saw Nazareth up on a hill. And all the little villages were set up on a hill. And they could be cooled on the hill by the breezes that blew in the day. And they could be more easily defended. And when night came, it was very common custom for them to light a lamp in the house. And it just made the little village sparkle. And anybody who was walking through the night could find his way very easily to the village because he could see the light sparkling on the hill. So the point is the city couldn't be hidden. Everybody knew that light was for the purpose of manifesting. And it's amazing to think about the fact that a Christian would say, well, I know God's light has shined in my heart, but I don't see that I have any need to shine anywhere else. You're light, my friend, and light isn't supposed to be hidden. You're a city on a hill. The point is conspicuousness. We're not just subtle salt. We're very conspicuous light. Every traveler knew where the refuge was. Every traveler knew where the little village was because the light sparkled like diamonds in the, in the sky. You know, we're not masons in a secret society. We're not pagans with mysteries only for the initiated. We don't have a cult known only to the few. We're a a city set on a hill. The whole world ought to see us. By the way, that's why I love these doors that you can see through. I just love people who drive up and down Roscoe Boulevard and say, look at all those people. What are they doing in there? We're a city set on a hill. 
And you know, we've got to be salt before we can be light. We've got to have the character and the influence before we have a message that's believable. So that's the divine plan. That's the plan. The presupposition to dark and decaying world, the plan, the dominion of the disciples as they dominate the world by their influence as salt and by their message and content as light. Thirdly, the presupposition and the plan also includes a problem. There is a problem, folks. If the presupposition is the darkness and decay of the world, if the plan is the dominion of the disciples, then the problem is the danger of failure. And there is that danger. There is that danger. With this tremendous responsibility, there is an attendant danger. We are salt and light, but we need to be warned because if sin enters our lives and if we don't walk in the Spirit, then we will stop being effective as salt and we will be useless as light. Look at verse 13 again. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its saltiness, what good is it? Non-salty salt, folks, has absolutely no use. It is thereafter good for nothing but to be cast out, to be trodden underfoot of men. Verse 15. Neither do men light a lamp and put it under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. The point is this. Salt is only good when it's got saltiness, and light is only good when it's conspicuous. There's no place for a secret disciple. There's no place for a secret Christian. Let's look at the concept of salt. And our Lord says the danger here is that salt could lose its saltiness. Morino in the Greek, it means flat and tasteless. It could become flat and tasteless. Now, there have been many explanations of this. Some say, well, you know, the salt we have today doesn't lose its saltiness. And that, for the most part, is true. But in that day, it wasn't nearly as refined. In fact, the salt from the marshes and the lagoons and the rocks around the Dead Sea, which, by the way, was a tremendous and still is a tremendous repository for salt. You can go to the Dead Sea and just lay flat on your back and just, you'll just bob there. It's incredible. And we've done that. But the salt there is, is just uh, in abundance. But it easily acquired in that time and still, because of its impurity, a stale or alkaline taste because it was mixed with gypsum, which was also there. And so that kind of salt would lose its capability to salt, and it would become very, very um, alkaline, very stale, and so forth. And the only thing it was good for was to throw out on the road where people walked on it. He didn't want to throw it on the field because it would kill everything growing there. So they threw it in the road where all that would happen would be it would be trampled. By the way, natural salt is impure in many cases and frequently mixed with other chemicals can become unsalty. William Thompson, in his classic book called The Land and the Book, which deals with the nation of Israel, tells about a merchant who rented several homes in which he stored salt. The, the, the merchant, however, forgot to cover the dirt floor before he put the salt down, and he simply unloaded the salt on the dirt, says Thompson. When he returned later, he discovered that his salt had lost its flavor from being next to the earth. The whole supply he threw into the street where men walked on it. So we know that the kind of salt they had at that time had the capacity to lose its saltiness, and that is what our Lord is alluding to, something that they would no doubt understand, that salt could lose its saltiness. I just want you to understand that. In uh, Luke 14.34, it says, Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, with what shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill, but men throw it out. So it's the same statement there in Luke. Now listen. 
We don't need to argue, and it's amazing how many commentators argue that Jesus was wrong here because salt can't lose its saltiness. But if anybody knows about salt, he does. It's like he knows about everything else. So we just find another explanation, as I've given to you, which is very simple. But what he's saying here is not that you lose your salvation. He's not saying, now, if you're not careful, you're going to get, lose your saltiness. No. What he's saying here is you'll lose your influence, right? And if sin enters into a Christian's life, it can lose his influence. Sin is in your life. You have no influence. You can't retard the corruption of the world. You're in it. You can't be purity against an impure background. You're impurity too. You can't be stinging in the wounds of other people's sin because you've got your own. You're not going to create a thirst in somebody for God because there's nothing there to make them thirsty for what you've got. You're just like them in behavior. So the point here is not that you lose your salvation, but like 1 Corinthians 9, 27, you become a castaway. You forfeit your influence. You lose your impact. The Christian loses his saltiness. Sad situation. You can lose it. You just be sinful at work, and you'll lose your reputation. You be sinful at school. Listen to the things people say that aren't right. Go along with the dirty talk or whatever. Be involved in the things they do you know aren't right. And you'll lose your saltiness. You'll make no contribution to retard their corruption. You'll make no pure statement against an impure background. You'll create no thirst in anybody for God. You see, the point is, God needs your influence. And you are to be salt. And to be salt, you've got to stay away from that which corrupts you. You know, they say that perfectly pure salt never loses its flavor. I like that. You want to know something? None of us is perfectly pure salt. We won't be till we get to glory, right? As long as we're in this life, we're going to have impurities, and the potential of losing our saltiness is always there. God help us to so live the kind of life that will influence the world. Let's talk about light for a minute. He says, a light? It's, it's something set on a hill. It's something put on a lampstand, and it gives light to everybody in the house. You certainly don't light a lamp and stick it under a peck. It's a, literally a measure, a, about a peck-shaped basket. You don't stick it under a basket. You don't take an, a lamp and put it under a basket. That's absolutely absurd. The little lamps they use, I don't know if you've seen those little terracotta lamps. Uh, they have a little spout on one end, a little handle on the other end, and a little floating wick in the middle, and they just fill them up with oil, and, and they just burn, about three or four inches wide, two inches high, six inches long, you know, and they would leave them to light all night. In fact, in Proverbs 31, the lady who gets up and lets her lamp not go out by night is probably the kind of lady who makes sure that there's always a lamp on in the house so anybody who needs to find his way around can. She's got enough oil to make sure that's done, and she's conscientious enough to get up in the middle of the night and relight that little lamp so there'll always be a light in the house. Jesus is saying how foolish it would be to get your lamp all trimmed, get the wick all clipped, get it down there, fill it up with oil, and stick a thing on top of it so nobody could see it. It would be silly. Listen, Christians, you know what's amazing? Some of us have got within us the treasure in earthen vessels, the gospel of Jesus Christ, only nobody knows. You know, somebody said most Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. I don't know if that's totally true, but there are a lot of us who haven't shared Jesus Christ with anybody in a year, five years, ten or fifteen. We gotta, we got a light, all right. We just got a modias over it, a peck basket. 
Listen, if you're going to light, you got to get your light where people can see it. And it's kind of interesting to look at verse 15 and see that it says, um, Neither do men light a lamp put under a bushel, but on a lampstand, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. And some feel that's a reference to Israel. That that specifically refers to them. And then the statement, all that enter in, would refer to the Gentiles. But I don't know that that's that we can push that too far. But the point is, whoever it is, whether it's Israel or the Gentiles or whoever it is, we want to make sure that the light is lit and visible. That's what Jesus is saying. And you know, to the people he was saying it to, he was really calling for something new. He was saying, you know, you're a part of a religious system that's all fouled up. And if you live according to kingdom character and the Beatitudes, then you've got to really be different. And you've got to be light so that they can all see it. And that isn't easy because they're not going to like what they see. It's always the fear of persecution that makes us hesitant. We're always a little afraid. And so after the beatitude of blessed are the persecuted, he has to reinforce the fact that don't you put your light under a bushel. You put it there where everybody can see it. So the whole world will know the truth of God. Verse 16 personalizes it. Let your light so shine. So shine before men that they may see your good works. Stop right there. Let it shine, people. That's all he's saying. It's a simple message tonight. Let your good deeds, agathos, good in quality. This is the quality of your deeds. The idea, or rather this is kalos, I'm sorry. Agathos means good in quality, but kalos used here means good in terms of beauty. It's the manifest beauty. Not just that they're good in and of themselves, but they have a beauty about them, an attractiveness. They're winsome. And that's the word he uses. In other words, let, let men see your winsomeness. Let them see your beauty. Let them see your attractiveness, your quality. It isn't just the good deed itself. It's the beauty that it manifests. I just want to make a little footnote. At the beginning of verse 16 it says, let your light shine. You don't have to trump it up. You don't have to light it. You don't have to crank it up. You don't have to worry about getting it started. All you got to do is let it go. You can't stop the light, and you can't light the light. You can just stick a bushel on it. The light is there, right? If Christ lives in you, he's the light. And you can't change that. You can't... You remember that little song, there's nobody who can fit out? Well, that's right. There isn't anybody going to fit out. Because the light is there. But you can put a bushel basket on top of it so nobody will ever know. It might be the bushel basket of fear, of wanting to be acceptable, of not wanting to offend, not wanting to make waves or whatever. But whatever it is, it ought to get off of there. You don't have to light it, and you can't put it out. You just got to let it shine by the way you live and the things you say. And let it shine before men in the presence of those who, who would hate you and kill you and reject you and deny you. Let it shine and let them see the beauty of your works. You know, when you hide your testimony, you're not doing anything but preventing somebody from seeing the beauty of God himself. When you don't testify, you're just withholding from someone that which they desperately need to see if they're ever to come to God. Well, what do we see then? The presupposition our Lord gives, the decay and darkness of the world. The plan that he gives, the dominion of the disciples, the dominion of the Christians. The problem that he talks about, the danger of failure. Oh, listen, we can hide that light and we can lose that saltiness. 
And if we do, we're losing our hands. And all of a sudden, we're going to go through that field and not going to find anybody that's lost. Finally, we've seen the presupposition and the plan and the problem and now the purpose. If the presupposition is the decay of the world and the plan is the dominion of the Christians and the problem is the danger of failure, then the purpose is the dignity of God. The dignity of God. And it's at the end of verse 16. And I don't need to say much about it because I've preached on it so many, many times. The reason for all of this, people, there's one single reason that overarches the whole universe. There's one single reason why you should be salt that is salty and light that is, that is manifest. And it is this, that you might glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do you see? And if you don't do it, then you're more concerned with your reputation than His glory. Do you see? That's still always the issue. Well, I don't know whether I ought to stick my neck out. I might lose my job or reputation or whatever or whatever. Then you have just ascended the scale and what you have and what you attain and what you get is more important than the glory of God. You see, not unto us, O Lord, said the psalmist, not unto us, but unto thy name give Glory, right? Can you lose yourself? Can you be salt that is salty? Can you be light that is lit and manifest? You can if you only care about the glory of God. But if you let your own personality and your own popularity and your own prestige and your own reputation get in the way, then the glory of God is dragged down, your flag goes up, and you say, I reign. I'll do what appeals to me. Glorify your Father who is in heaven. Notice he uses the word Father. I think because he wants to emphasize the beautiful tenderness and intimacy of God. And yet he says in heaven. And there he, he speaks of the majesty. On the one hand, God is a tender, loving Father. On the other hand, he is a majestic, sovereign God in heaven. And so he says we are to glorify God. That's good news. That's the reason we live. There is no other reason. But to glorify God, that's all. Dr. Robert Murray McShane was one of the saints of the last century. His face, they used to say, was sometimes lit up with a hallowed expression so that people who came to see him fell on their knees to accept Jesus Christ when they saw his face. And it says others were so attracted to the indescribable beauty of holiness manifested on his countenance, countenance that Jesus became to them irresistible. Isn't that fantastic? Influence. It is said of Fenelon, the great Christian of ages past, his communion with God was such that his face shone. Lord Peterborough, a skeptic, was once compelled to spend a night with him in an inn. In the morning... He hurried away saying, if I spend another night with that man, I'll be a Christian in spite of myself. <laughs> Fenelon's manner, his voice, and his face reflected so perfectly the glory of Christ that he was irresistibly attractive to even the worldliest and vilest of humanity. What about you? Are you the kind of salt that retards the corruption and the kind of a light that just attracts 
in the beauty of holiness as the shining of your goodness and beauty. The power of God released in you touches the people around you and you never mitigate it. You never cover it. You let it shine so that God can be glorified. Salt and light, Father. Simple message. Needed to be because this was just part of the first sermon you gave. They needed to hear the basics, and so do we, 2,000 years later, we who know the Bible so well. And we just need to hear again the same old story. There's a wheat field out there, and the wheat is too tall for the people who are lost to see the Father's house. And we've got to join our hands and go from one end of the field to the other before it's too late, and we come to one whom the cold of the night has taken to a Christless grave. God, help us to join hands before it's too late for some. We know even today some passed into eternity. Tomorrow some more will pass to eternity. You've told us to take the gospel to every creature. Help us to be willing to influence the world like Helen Ewing did. And wherever we walk, we leave Christ behind. Help us to change conversations so that when we show up, they say, they say, shh, he's coming or she's coming. If we were to die tomorrow, could it be said that we made a difference in the world? Oh, Lord God, may we be salt that is salty and light that is manifest. May we be a city set on a hill. May we let our light so shine that men may see our good works and glorify the Father in heaven. Deliver us from the sins that would render us tasteless, useless, but to be thrown on the road and walked on. Deliver us from the fear and the pride and the exaltation of self that makes us put our light under a bushel. Help us to, to live the way you want us to live. Make a difference in the world. We expect the world isn't going to like it. But even though there may be a reaction against it, there's also going to be some who are coming to Jesus Christ through our life. May we be useful in the world's wheat field to find those that are lost. We think of our Lord Jesus as he looked over the city of Jerusalem and wept and said, You will not come to me that you might have life. Father, help us not to cause even more tears because we too have been unfaithful. May we so live to fulfill this marvelous command of our Lord Jesus Christ. We who have kingdom character, may we let it influence the world in which we live. Make us different, Lord, that the world may be different because we are. While your heads are bowed for just a minute, I'm going to let you go in a moment. Let me just say this. I think God's going to call on us in days ahead to stand up and be counted for His cause. I think we had a little taste of it just in the recent days. That's nothing. I think of Hebrews 12. We have not suffered under blood. and We certainly haven't been martyred yet. 
I don't know what has, the future has for us, but I just think we need to come to grips with our lives right now. Where are you investing your time? Where are you investing your life? Where are you investing your money? Where are you placing these things? You only have this one life, that's all. Just You got one shot at it. You've claimed Christ. You love Christ. Are you salt that is salty? Are you light that is manifest? Oh, let's make a difference in the world. The world really needs us. We're the only salt and the only light. Let's be different. Let's make a difference. Will you covenant in your heart with me before God that that's what you want to do? Father, we thank you tonight for how, again, in the simplicity and the beauty of your word, you penetrated our hearts. Make us different. We know there's a price to pay. That's okay. You paid the supreme price for us. You bore the blows that should have been borne by us. Surely we can take the blows that the world means for you. Help us to be faithful. And may this community of believers right here make a difference in the world. Not for our sake, God, not for the sake of Grace Church, John MacArthur, or any individual, but for the glory of God, the Father who is in heaven. His glory alone we seek. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You've been listening to John MacArthur, Bible teacher with Grace to You. For free access to all of John's lessons and a listing of study Bibles and books available for sale, visit Grace to You's website, gty.org. And for details about the Masters University where John serves as president, go to masters.edu. John MacArthur and Grace to You reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available at gty.org and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating this digital file.
One True God. This is Ken Ham, and this year plan to visit our life-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Who do you say Jesus is? You know, this is the most important question you'll ever answer. How does the Bible answer this question? We're going to take a look over the next two weeks. God's Word teaches that there's one true God, and He's triune. We refer to this as the Trinity. This means God exists eternally as three equal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are equally and fully God. This teaching is seen in both the Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, the Spirit is poured out and Jesus appears to several people. The New Testament specifically reveals Jesus as divine and calls the Father, Son, and Spirit God. There's so much more to discover when you visit us at AnswersRadio.com. In this new year, make it a habit to browse our information-packed website of AnswersRadio.com. Ah, the new year. Time for a fresh start. New beginnings. Bogus prophecies that don't mean anything. Seriously, watch out for those yahoos declaring, this is the year of your breakthrough. But now you've made a few New Year's resolutions of your own. Perhaps you want to lose a few pounds or break a bad habit or learn a new skill. And then in two weeks when you ethically fail at your resolution, you'll say, eh, there's always next year. Is it a good idea for Christians to be making resolutions? Sure, why not? There's nothing wrong with setting personal goals. Just remember that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Unless your resolution is to diet, in which case don't eat and don't drink to the glory of God. Consider also these words from James. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Yeah, it's straight up evil to think that you control your destiny. But as Job understood, the days of a man are like the days of a hired hand. His days are few and predetermined, and God has appointed our limits that we cannot pass. Jesus said not to be anxious about anything, what you shall eat or drink or wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these other things will be added to you when we understand the text. That's when we understand the text, also known as what? W-W-U-T-T, called. And you can find them on YouTube at W-W-U-T-T. And also their website, www.tt.com. And next got for you, this is Shailene with Stand Up here on Truth Be Told Radio. Hey, yo, they said it was over, man. They said it was over. But it ain't over. We just getting started. Yo, 7,000, we all at. Let's go. Stand up, stand up. If you truly love the son of man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up. Stand up. Does anybody love the son of man? Trust. Jesus is the king so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Surprise. No surprise. I'm back in your section with Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection. More power than gravity. His knowledge and strategies confound the academy. Bow to his majesty. He paid sin salary. Took up blame on Calvary. Those who love his name spread his fame is the policy. All eyes on the mattress price of his sacrifice. That's prize I'm asked to Christ and rise in the afterlife. What? Did we forget about the holiness of God or something? Did we forget that God owes us a rod or something? See the snake bruise when Christ came to save dudes who hate truth. The gospel is not fake news. I gotta send the 
than it's ever been. Ain't nothing changed, let us in, we got the medicine. It's still human emergency, the serpent attack. You think Jesus can't say? That's alternative facts. Stand up, hand up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hand up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Stop and listen to my composition. Lots of rhythm, but not traditional, kind of different. But God's consistent, no contradiction, my proposition. Through crucifixion, he mocked and crippled his opposition. It's not some fiction, I'm spitting, the Son of God is risen. And my incentive for godly living is I'm forgiven. Jesus came to unlock the prison. And through the Spirit, he brings a new birth like an obstetrician. At times I listen, a lot of Christian hip-hop is missing. The proposition is my suspicion, we drop the mission. Not to this, but the Word of God, is it not sufficient? The doctrine is that the gospel fixes. Is our shock condition. God the Spirit supplies conviction through proper diction. Against the backdrop of our tradition, the gospel glistens. A squad of Christians go out and witness a God's commission. Cause Jesus Christ got the top position, no competition. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive and his fame is going to spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing and forever say worthy is the Lamb. What's up? They want Jesus in the background like elevator music, but we gon' celebrate him, relegate him, we refuse it. They hate Christian hip-hop, I peep myself. They say we too redundant, well let me repeat myself. What I gotta say almost feels too real estate. Sit back and feel the weight of what a real estate. Cause yo, Jesus Christ got me in the real estate. I'm purchased property, I feel like I'm real estate. If the Father wasn't gracious, no sin in him. Again, he came straight blameless, no sin in him. Again, nothing's been the same since, no sin in him. Again, fakers lack his fragrance, no sin in him. This is not the picture in a frame to still Jesus. Nah, we serve the rock, the harder than still Jesus. So how we gonna be silent, let the world still Jesus. When the world and its trends pass away, it's still Jesus. Stand up, hands up. If you truly love the Son of Man, trust. Jesus is alive and his people he'll revive. And his fame is gonna spread across the land. What's up? Stand up, hands up. Does anybody love the Son of Man? Trust. Jesus is the King, so his people we will sing. And forever say worthy is the land. What's up? Jesus, he's always existed. This is Ken Ham, president of Answers in Genesis, The Ark Encounter, and The Creation Museum. Ask the question, when did Jesus come into existence? And you'll probably get different answers. Maybe a date like 4 BC, or at the beginning of creation. But what does the Bible say? Scripture teaches Jesus has no beginning or end. He's pre-existent. In the Gospel of John, we read that Jesus existed before the world began and that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Apostle Paul writes that Jesus is our Creator and Sustainer. Jesus isn't a created being like you and me. He's the eternal God who's always been from eternity past and always will be in eternity. 
In this new year, plan to visit our Ark Encounter and Creation Museum. Go to AnswersRadio.com and sign up to receive insights from Ken Ham at AnswersRadio.com. Writing this to you, I really hope you hear my heart When thinking about describing you, I really don't know where to start Can't start at the beginning, cause you are before the beginning Way before the beginning, and this fallen world's distorted opinions It was just the holy trinity, ruling from infinity Glory blazed tremendously, loving one another endlessly Billions and billions of years ago, outside of what we know as time Nobody else was there to know, but Lord, here's the thing that blows my mind As long ago as that was Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change. You remain the Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change Forever you reign, you remain the same You will never change, you will never change Immutable, beautiful You never change, never change I was thinking just the other day How you reign supreme by far Not just because of what you do But simply because of who you are There's none like you in existence You are God and you need no assistance Even though we show you resistance You sent Jesus to close the distance That existed between God and man According to your sovereign plan We changed many times in one lifespan I've changed even since this song began Lord, I'm so glad that you're not like us All that you do will certainly last You are the rock that we can trust Shows us back in eternity past As long ago as that was as long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you are beautiful. You never change, you remain the same. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. Forever you reign, you remain the same. You will never change, you will never change. Immutable, beautiful, you never change, never change. When I think about my ups and downs, all of my inconsistencies, all of my idiosyncrasies, still you pursue relentlessly. At times I wonder how this can be. Surely it's because of the cross. When Jesus paid the full penalty and bore the burden of sin's great cost. I'm saved by grace and faith in God. I look to Christ and I trust He died. So even though I'm being sanctified, I can't be any more justified. His work is finished that cannot change. And with this knowledge, I am free. Forever this grace, it will remain because of what happened on Calvary. As long ago as that was. Long ago as that was, you have not changed, Lord. Oh, Lord, Lord, Lord. As long ago, as long ago, as long ago as that was, you're still the same. You have not changed. What can that mean? But my God is immutable. Immutable, you 
smoking marijuana a sin? Well, it used to be that you could say yes, because it's illegal, and that would be that. But now that marijuana is legal, medicinally and recreationally, is it still sin? Yes. 1 Corinthians 6.12, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Often marijuana is compared to drinking alcohol or caffeine, but they are not the same. You can drink a glass of wine and not get drunk, or have a cup of coffee and still operate heavy machinery. But if you take one puff on a joint or a bite of Aunt Mary Jane's special brownies, you get high. The whole point of marijuana is to alter the consciousness, which diminishes your thinking and functioning. While God does not put an absolute prohibition on drinking alcohol, it is always sin to be intoxicated. Drunkenness, whether by the vine or the weed, is not of the spirit but of the flesh. Those who do it will not inherit the kingdom of God. But marijuana is a plant, and it was made by God, so that makes it good for us. Yeah, there are plenty of poisonous plants you don't apply that logic to. Adam and Eve ate of a forbidden plant. How did that turn out for them? 1 Peter 4 says to no longer live for human passions, but for the will of God. Unbelievers live in sensuality, passions, intoxication, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. The Bible says, be sober-minded and have the mind of Christ. Your mind should not be mastered by anything else when we understand the text. Redeem the people 
east and west Glorious robes in the promised land dress We stand blessed all because of the Lamb's death So as we're lifting up our praise to you receive it Lord The object of our affection whom we adore Falling in our misery You daughter into history The pardon of iniquity Startling the mystery Ocean's the plains, the mountains, the rain, the universe proclaims the glory of your name. And what am I that you called me to your side and took this heart of stone and broke it open wide?
David Platt's concern about the evangelical church. Let his words ring in your ears. Let them ring in my ears. And let us all individually reconsider our priorities. Do they match the priorities of our God or of our golden calf culture? Some evangelistic booklets are too squishy, some are too strong, some are too short, some are too long. Don't stub your toe, it's just right. In other words, this is the gospel booklet that has been endorsed by the baby bear. You can get your copies to give to people you know who are not saved at wretched.org. So I'll cherish the 
Goldfish with Gold River Pass. I know that GoFishGuys.com, G-O-F-I-S-H-G-U-I-S.com, GoFishGuys.com. And thanks for listening. Melissa Cantrell here on Truth Be Told Radio. We got a website at TruthBeToldRadio.com, TruthBeToldRadio.com. And next we're going to play GoFish with Shackles Fraylon here on Truth Be Told Radio. Creator. This is Ken Ham inviting you to visit our popular full-size Noah's Ark in northern Kentucky. Yesterday we learned that Jesus has always existed since eternity past. 
But some people will argue that Jesus is really a created being. They get this from the book of Colossians where Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. But the Greek word Paul chose for firstborn doesn't refer to first created. There's a perfectly good word for first created, but that's not the word he used. Instead, Paul chose a word used to designate authority. So by saying Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, he's really saying Jesus is the absolute ruler over all creation. In the next verse, Paul says that all things were made through Jesus Christ. Plan your visit to the remarkable full-size Noah's Ark when you go to AnswersRadio.com. Enjoy three exhibit decks, a zoo, zip lines, and more. Go to AnswersRadio.com. To ID at wretchedradio.com. No, that's not right. Oh no, I'm going to get busted again. Wretched.org. What are we? Who are we? Why am I here? How did I get here? Idea at wretched.org. That's it. Wow, trained monkeys are better at their jobs than I am. Idea at wretched.org. Org. Look. Well, they do have less of a job. Well, I'm, I'm more like a Pavlovian dog. I've already been trained, and it's tough to teach an old dog new tricks. I really regret saying that. Send stuff to idea at wretched.org, idea at wretched.org. Very, very grateful for this. Please note, going to try to be very fair about this. About six, maybe eight weeks ago, very excitedly, we talked about the Bible Museum that is opening up in Washington, D.C. It has already opened up. And we were very excited about it, very hopeful for that, and we still are. Read a review of somebody who was not trying to be snarky. They weren't like, oh, I hate it, it was stupid, instead of being all nitpicky and, and just kind of taking away, the finding enough little tiny detail stuff to just besmirch the whole thing. But their review of it was, it doesn't put the Bible in the lofty position it deserves. It treats it more like a book of antiquity that has had a big impact on culture. Do with it as you see fit. Now, on the one hand, I get that. They're trying to create a museum that just says, okay, here's this book, look at what it's done. If you are a Christian, you know that it is the inspired, infallible, inerrant, sufficient word of God, and you can appreciate it as such. But we're just going to present it so that even a pagan can go, oh, okay, I see how they oh, yeah, got it. All right, so they, they treat it like it is a pot that they found at some archaeological dig. While I understand that, uh, why, would a, why, would a, why would a Christian want to do that? <laughs> I just wouldn't do that. It's, it's God's word. God has spoken in his word. And it's not just about how it's transformed cultures. It's done that, yes, hospitals, yes, volunteer organizations, yes, school, yes, commerce, all of the government, yeah, check, check, check. It saves souls. It reveals who God is so that we might know him. And it's transformed millions of lives, and it's changed the eternity of, dare I say, billions of people? That would be the focus. And if you're a pagan and you don't like it, well, I'm sorry. This, this, this tour isn't for you. We read that review, and we said, this is one person's perspective. Received an email sent to idea at wretched.org. 
Org. Idea at Wretched. I think I'm just driving around in my car. I'll just start repeating that over and over again so I can look like a babbling knucklehead you pull up next to. Who is he talking to? He doesn't have a Bluetooth in. Idea at Wretched.org. Laura Moses. Looking forward to seeing her family, by the way, at the G3 conference. Are you going to be there? Find out more at the G3. G3, what is it called? G3. Joey, give everybody the website if you'd be so kind. Google.com, enter G3 conference. Exactly. <laughs> hey, Todd, thought you might like to have a little bit more info about the Museum of the Bible. Well done as far as state-of-the-art production, beauty, and historical documents. Uh, one of the critiques, by the way, that I recall reading is a lot of the documents, not all, a lot of the documents weren't the actual documents of antiquity, replications. Does that take away from it? Uh, yes and no, because remember, there's nothing to with those documents. There's not supernatural power. It's just kind of cool to see something that's 500, 1,000 years old. There's no, it, It's not like they're, they're seeing a representation of it gives you the gist. Yeah, the real deal is just a little cooler, nevertheless. So it's very minimalistic without a gospel message, and at times undermines the authority of the Bible altogether. Now, that was not just Laura's opinion. She sent in some of the text from it. This was the welcoming audio clip called Ancient Oral Storytelling from the Fourth Floor History of the Bible. Now, I'll just read some of this to you, and you tell me what you think of this, all right? In 1929, a I wouldn't hire you, for one. Well, I was just doing my best to sound like... Oh, you want to hear something creepy? I you don't want to hear need something you to be an NPR announcer, okay? I wonder if I can... <laughs> <laughs> Just say it. What school do they all go to? I they, they go to that high church homily school. Prepare now to hear the word of God. This, 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 this was from the Mormon endowment ceremony. I don't know if I can find that for you or not. Yep, I can. Are you familiar with a Mormon endowment ceremony? This is where you yeah. go. It, it's a, it's it's creepyville. This is this is where you go well before before you get married, and and or even after you've been married, I guess. And then you do the sealing ceremony, where the man learns the new name of the woman, the wife, so that he can call her from her grave, so that she can get to heaven. If she knows the right handshakes to use with the angels who are guarding heaven. You know what book of the Bible that's taken from? None! Listen to the voice work. Creepier than me. The officiator will represent Elohim at the altar. A couple will now come to the altar. Look at this. Now, the couple is coming. This is undercover, by the way. They represent Adam and Eve. Brethren and sisters, this couple represents all of you as if at the altar. You must consider yourselves as if you were respectively Adam and Eve. What's about? We do the rest of the program like that. And all of God's people know. said, no, thank uh -huh. you. In 1929, a Syrian farmer discovered a vast underground vault that contained tablets vases, because they're worth more than a dollar, jugs, and gold and silver. This was from the ancient Canaanite city of Ugarit. Unless you're from the south, then it's probably Ugarit, because they tend to put the accent on the first syllable. I-N-S-U-A-I-N-S-U-R-A-N-C. 
Northerner, what number one, Tony? How do you say that word? I and I, idea at wretched.org. I and S U R A N C E. It's a card you have to bring to the doctor's office. Blue Cross Blue Shield is a what? Insurance company. Yeah, insurance. Did you hear where the accent was yeah. on the second syllable? Insurance. That would not be correct. That would be <laughs> insurance. That would be the anti you know. Nevertheless, if you go to a doctor in the south, do you have your insurance card? If you have visited the city of Ugarit, they did a dig there. Among the intriguing discoveries were poems similar to biblical psalms and laws similar to biblical laws. Now, listen very, very carefully. When discoveries such as these are made, the question presents itself. How did these common elements come about, and what do they reveal about the origins of the Bible? In some cases, scholars conclude that texts adapted stories directly from earlier writings. In other cases, they argue that stories, perhaps related in some way to historical events, were passed down orally for many generations. As stories were told and retold, religious groups interpreted them in their own ways and then captured these stories in writing. Some groups may have believed that religious authorities or even divine revelation itself unveiled the truth in these stories. Opinions differ on what this means for the interpretation of the Bible. What is clear is that the Bible weaves many unique stories together with some it shared with surrounding cultures. Those shared stories are presented in a distinctive way. And all of God's people said, that ain't what the Bible is all about. That is not even close. That puts the Bible on par with other cultures' tales. No, the Bible is the authoritative source. Are there some documents that appear to resemble the Bible? Yes, but that's all they are. They resemble, but they're not. The Bible is superior to every book. I think you might be right about this, Laura. In another section, kids are welcome to translate the Bible. Here's what it said. Many stories in the Bible involve... Oh, that, that, this one is where instead of using sheep and shepherds, we've got to put it in the right context. So if you're teaching this in Alaska, make it seals and, and whatever a shepherd would be in yeah. Alaska. No, you teach them what a sheep is, because a sheep is different than a seal. You teach the Bible, not contextualize it to the point where it's not identifiable. Now, she completed the survey, sent the disappointment that she discovered at the museum, and she received a response. Why didn't you preach the gospel? Here's the canned response. The, Bible, the Museum of the Bible is a non-sectarian, and even though many of our board members and staff have a specific set of beliefs, the museum was created to invite all people to engage with the Bible. But we do have the following information in the museum about Jesus and the gospel. Guests will hear the New Testament story of a new community of both Jews and Gentiles whose growth was fueled by belief that God is leading people home through Jesus, whom they believe God raised from the dead to rule as a king. Throughout the 430,000-square-foot building are quotes by and about Jesus and images of Jesus as he is a key figure in the Bible. Not saying you should go or you shouldn't go, just saying you should know before you go to the Museum of the Bible. Let's just put it this way. It doesn't have the same view of the Bible as, say, I don't know, the Ark Encounter or the Genesis uh, Answers in Genesis Creation Museum, where they actually have a appropriate view of scripture and might be 
or worth your time. But hey, don't let me tell you where to go for vacation. This is Wretched Radio. Don't forget, if you would like to hear the entire daily broadcast, simply visit wretched.org, go to iTunes, figure out your favorite Android listening platform, and you can listen to the entire program every single day, downloaded to your listening device for free. Well, thanks to our monthly supporters called the Gospel Partners. If you'd like to partner with us, we'd be very, very grateful. Simply visit wretched.org. That was Museum of the Bible, or Museum of the Bible, like with first was capital V and the other one, lowercase v. Uh, that was Wretched Tafriel on that. And next what we got for you is something from Answers and Genesis. Here on Truth Victory. Jesus said he was God. This is Ken Ham, a publisher of the award-winning family magazine, answers. All this week we've been looking at who the Bible says Jesus is. Well, who did Jesus say he was? During one of his encounters with the Pharisees, Jesus told them they would die in their sins unless they believed that I am he. So they asked him, who are you? Jesus responded, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When Jesus said, I am, he was saying, I am Yahweh. I am the God of history, the God revealed to Abraham and Moses, the God of the Old Testament, the one true God. This was such a bold declaration of divinity that the Jewish leaders grabbed stones to kill him for blasphemy. Jesus said he was God. Learn more about Jesus and the free gift of salvation at AnswersRadio.com and get answers to your questions about the Bible, science, and more at AnswersRadio.com.
My Lord and my God. This is Ken Ham, heading up the ministry that built a full-size Noah's Ark south of Cincinnati. Yesterday we learned that Jesus said he was God, and the Jewish leaders tried to stone him for it. So what did Jesus' closest friends and followers say about him? The Apostle Peter, one of the three men closest to Jesus, wrote that he was our God and Saviour. John, who was called Jesus' beloved, said he was the Alpha and Omega and the first and the last. These titles apply only to God. Jesus' half-brother James, who was an unbeliever at first, described Jesus as the Lord of glory. And the Apostle Thomas called Jesus my Lord and my God. These men were willing to suffer and die for proclaiming Jesus as Lord. He proved it by rising from the dead. Plan your visit to our world-class Ark Encounter-themed attraction featuring three decks of exhibits, a zoo, zip lines, and more at AnswersRadio.com. AnswersRadio.com. All I want to do is praise your name from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same. You are my God and all I want to do is praise your name.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.